Uh, my name's Matt Lulloyan. If we've never met before, uh, I have the privilege of serving as the pastor uh, of Liberty Church here. Uh, it's an honor to have you with us this morning for, um, for whatever reason you, you find yourself here. Uh, and if you uh, have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that's under a seat in front of you or nearby there, uh, the Bibles that Rachel mentioned a second ago, uh, page 519 is where you will find uh, Psalm 131. In the uh, 17th century, a Puritan named John Owen articulated this really critical distinction between union with God and communion with God. Union with God and communion with God. So union, or to be united with God, is really what it means to experience salvation. We are united with Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. When we trust in Jesus and his finished work, our our union with God becomes a reality. And our position, our standing with God, changes. But communion with God is, is different than that. Where union with God doesn't wax and wane, right? It's based on the work of God on our behalf, not our work, not our performance, not our action or inaction. Communion with God can fluctuate. Union with God is a position, it's a a standing, it's a place with God, but communion with God is the more experiential aspect of our relationship, of our intimacy with him. And so it's not that, that God's love for us ever changes or that God pulls away from us at times or anything like that. It's just that there are things that we can either do or not do that help or hinder our experience of that relationship, our communion with him. In a reflection on some of John Owen's work, uh, a scholar named Kelly Capick offers a really insightful parallel about this with, with a marriage between a husband and wife. Says this, So while our prayers, or our lack of prayers, do not make us more or less united with Christ, they do make a real difference to our enjoyment of and fellowship with God. Union establishes the relationship. Communion is the mutual communication and experience that happens within the relationship. A negligent husband may still be united to his wife in marriage, but that does not mean their relationship is flourishing. Their legal union does not mean that life-giving communion is taking place. The benefits meant to be experienced out of that union are not fully enjoyed when such disregard is occurring. Believers who are careless in their communion with God are like spouses who ignore the one they claim to love. God invites us not only to be secure in our salvation, but to flourish in our relationship with him. And we call this communion with God. From my my vantage point, and maybe you'll agree with me on this, maybe you'll disagree with this. From my vantage point, we really need to reclaim and relearn from this distinction between union and communion with God. And I think that's especially true for us who at least the majority of us in the room are part of a background or are part of at least at present theological tribes that are much more suspicious of anything experiential uh, and, and much more instead prone to stoicism or much more prone to even fatalism at times. There's a great uh, satire article this week uh, about a Presbyterian minister who showed some emotion during a sermon. He teared up talking about salvation, and he resigned in disgrace afterward because that's not, that's not okay in, uh, in, in Presbyterian, Presbyterian world. So you don't have to convince me, you don't have to convince many people in this room that there are dangers to leading with emotion or dangers to leading with experience in the Christian life. But we should be equally concerned 
with becoming stoic, with becoming fatalistic in our relationship with God, with not caring about this communion, this experiential aspect of our relationship with God. If any of the, the marriages in this room look like that one that was just described a couple moments ago, then as someone who loves you and someone who wants good things for you and someone who, who wants to see you thrive and flourish in this world, I would really be grateful that your marriage is still intact, but I wouldn't pretend for a second that, that that's the only thing that's important or be content or satisfied with the state of your, of your marriage if it's like the one that we just read about. There's so much more that's possible. There's so much more that's offered in a marriage relationship. And the same thing is true for many of us when it comes to our relationship with God. So we're going to spend this morning in Psalm 131. Uh, Psalm 131 lays a, a great foundation for pursuing communion with God. It's, uh, it's, Psalm 131 is, is among the songs of ascents. You might see that little subheader in your Bible as, you, as you've turned there. The songs of ascents are, are this group of psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, that were used by the people of God as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. There's a, there's a double meaning in the word ascent. So there's a physical ascent. Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, is located topographically in a more elevated position than most of the surrounding area around it. So you physically, when you go to the temple, you ascend that mountain to the temple. But there's also a spiritual ascent. As you sing, as you recite these songs, these psalms with, with God's people, your heart ascends to God. Worship in your heart is stirred up. You're preparing yourself to worship God at his temple. The, the Israelites had a really deep appreciation of what it was to commune with God in his presence. That's why the, the tabernacle and then the temple throughout the Old Testament, that's why they're so significant. That's where God's presence was. And so these psalms, they are worship themselves, but they are also at the very same time preparation to worship in the presence of God. And so because of that, they're really saturated with these, with these realities, with these truths, with these pursuits that help us see the, the beauty and the worth of God. And so as we read, as we consider Psalm 131 today, my prayer for us is that we would experience something of what the Israelites experienced when they considered the words of this psalm, that it would be preparing us and helping us pursue that kind of communion with God. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Let me pray. Our Lord and God, now as we consider your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we might truly delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon uh, once said of Psalm 131 that it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Right? How do you prepare 
to commune with God. And, and isn't that something that you have to learn over and over again in your life as your life changes, as your circumstances change, as you change as a person? Psalm 131 is not a step-by-step kind of guide, but its inclusion among the songs of ascents means that really for generations, for centuries now, it has been used to call God's people to three pursuits that do help us prepare for communion with God. So it's not a linear process, it's not a step-by-step kind of thing, but these are three pursuits that help us to prepare to commune with God, and they are these. Humility, mystery, and tranquility. Humility, mystery, and tranquility. We'll talk about each. So the first one is humility. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. A heart that is not lifted up. Another way to translate that phrase would be to say a proud heart. And eyes that are raised too high. Another way to translate that would be haughty eyes. So eyes that that have a superiority to them or a disdain for others in them. And Arrogance like that, pride like that, really they are major obstacles to our communion with God. To think of ourselves more highly than we ought, to have a sense of superiority, that hinders our experience of of nearness and closeness and intimacy in a relationship. That's true of any relationship. You go into any relationship with a sense of superiority, a sense of arrogance or pride, that's going to hinder your ability to really connect with that person. It's even more so the case with God. And one of the refrains that's throughout Scripture, throughout both the Old and New Testaments, is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So one of these pursuits, one of these preparations we make to commune with God is to pursue humility. To ascend to God, another way we could think about it, means that we descend we, 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 there's a descent of self. To ascend to God, there's a descent of self. Or even another way to think about it, to journey up to the throne of God means we have to get off of our own throne. We have to step out of that central ruling place of our own life and return to a, an accurate and a healthy perception of who I am before God. A thousand years after David penned this particular psalm, Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee, religious ruler, religious leader of the day, and a tax collector, who is an agent of the occupying Roman Empire, would be viewed as a, a traitor and a sellout by the other Israelite people. They are together in the temple. And the Pharisee, Jesus says, prays this incredibly arrogant prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. That's the essence of his prayer. Thank you that I'm so good and way better than the other guy who's here with me. The tax collector, Jesus says, is standing far off and he can't even lift his eyes to heaven and it says that he's beating his breast. So if there were ever a posture of a heart not being lifted up and eyes not being raised too high, what David says in Psalm 131, that's what the tax collector looks like in Jesus' parable. And Jesus says, it's this man, it's the tax collector, who is near to God and near to the kingdom of God. That he's the one who is actually communed with God. Jesus says, he's the one, not the other, that goes home justified. That he is exalted, as he took that place of humility, he is exalted and he's brought near to God, while the Pharisee's prayer, his efforts to commune with God, are all for naught. Psalm 131 shines an even brighter spotlight on the contrast 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right, think about the horror of the Pharisee's posture in light of Psalm 131. As a religious leader, as one of the religious rulers of God's people, he was no doubt familiar with Psalm 131. And probably it was part of a regular part of his life and his routine. One of the songs that you would sing as you went up to God's house to worship. And yet it is in that very house, it is within the temple that he prays this arrogant prayer. The tax collector, on the other hand, pursues David's posture of humility. And he goes home having truly encountered God's presence and, and being transformed by it. So as you and I pursue humility, here's something that's really important for us to remember. That humility is not the same thing as humiliation. Humility is not the same thing as humiliation. Just as we'll see in a moment that mystery is not the same thing as ignorance or laziness, and that tranquility is not the same thing as passivity or mindlessness, humility is not humiliation. Humility instead is found in remembering truly who we are. It comes by more clearly seeing who God is and who we are in light of him. And the Psalms, including this one, are, are really helpful in, in calibrating and recalibrating our gauge of that. We considered a couple weeks ago Psalm 23. We are sheep. We are sheep. And in this Psalm, we are children. We are weaned children, right? We're not, we're not God. We're not masters of our own destiny. And so some here in this room, some among us, are arrogant. And so our communion with God, that's hindered by having our eyes and our hearts lifted too high. But there are others among us who are on the other side of that completely. And instead, you're immersed all the time in your deficiencies and your weaknesses, and you're immersed in your inability. You're, you're entrapped by shame. And that, too, will hinder communion with God. Why is that? Well, because it's just another and far more deceptive form of pride. It's far more deceptive because it's, it's not as obvious as the, the superiority complex. That's more easy to perceive as pride. But our eyes are still on ourselves when we're in despair. And so it just really underneath is another more deceptive form of pride where our eyes are still on ourselves more than they are on God. What we learn in Scripture is that humility doesn't come by keeping your eyes on yourself. No matter which way you're prone to err in that, humility doesn't come by keeping your eyes on yourself. Humility comes by knowing that the eyes of God himself are on you. And for someone who's arrogant and haughty, that means the eyes of God are on you and you are not him. So, so find yourself in the right posture and position under him. But for those who are prone to inferiority and shame, it's found in knowing that the eyes of God are on you and they are on you with far more compassion than you have for yourself. Psalm 103, another Psalm of David, he says that God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. So for those of us not prone to arrogance, but prone more to humiliation or shame, remember that. God knows your frame. And it's not that he doesn't have good plans and a significant life and a call upon your life to do and be great things. But as he looks at you, he remembers that you are dust, that you are weak and limited, which is, which is why we need this union and communion with him in the first place. So, so be free in that of, of your prison of humiliation. And instead, let the compassionate eyes of God be upon you, 
And that's where humility is found, humility that will fuel and help you experience communion with God. Second pursuit that prepares us to commune with God is mystery. Mystery. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, the second half of verse 1. So there, there are things in this life that are beyond our comprehension. There are things that belong to God and his greatness and his majesty, and they are beyond our human ability to really grasp and understand. And for us to pretend otherwise, for us to expect closure, for us to expect resolution to every question or concern or struggle that we might encounter, that will hinder our experience, our ability to really commune with God. Whenever I talk about the mysteries of God, I'm reminded, and I steal this from John Calvin. I love his phrase. He calls it learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. So it's not that we call everything a mystery just because it's difficult to think about. It's difficult to comprehend. Well, that's just a mystery because I just don't feel like putting in the effort and energy to figure that out or think about it. Right? Mystery is not laziness. It's not anti-intellectualism. It's a pursuit. It's, it's really hard work. And it's in that pursuit, in attending to the things of God, we looked at last week, Psalm 107, considering the steadfast love of God, contemplating who he is and what he does. That's where we will increasingly find ourselves in this place of learned ignorance. And that's where the real celebration of the mysteries of God, the mystery of the gospel, is found. It's not found in shallowness. It's not found in intellectual laziness but in the pursuit of mystery and learned ignorance. That is where you can truly believe, not just as a cliche kind of Christian phrase, bumper sticker kind of verse, but truly believe as both the longing and satisfaction of your soul that God's ways are higher than our ways and we don't know everything there is to know. That truly at the end of the day, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. So for you, if, if everything is a mystery then learn more. If everything is a mystery, if, if you're tempted to use that as some kind of excuse and say, well, I can't really understand that because it's a mystery and everything about God is a mystery, lean in a little bit more. Communion with God will come through more exploration, more learning, and more understanding. And I would call you to really dive into what Scripture does reveal about God because there are things we can know and a lot of things we can know about God because he's been kind enough to reveal that to us. As the prophet Hosea says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So even if we can't know fully, there really is a lot that we can know. And the pursuit would be to press on to know him. Press on to know the God who is there, the God who has revealed himself, the God who has invited you to know him as he has revealed himself. But if on the other hand, Nothing remains a mystery for you. If you always have an airtight answer for everything about the things of God, about who God is, about how he works in the world, if you've always got an answer, you've always got a, a category for that, and you've always got a, a short kind of comeback response to that, then you have no doubt made God in your image rather than knowing the God who made you in his. Does that make sense? If you, if you have an airtight answer for everything, at the end of the day, there's no mystery left for you, then no doubt you have made God in your own image rather than knowing the real God who made you 
in his. And that will hinder your communion with God because you've now placed yourself at a peer level or maybe even a superior level to God. You've placed God within a box of your own comprehension. And so if that's you, then stop striving all the time for an answer. And really, I would invite you to rediscover the beauty of the mysteries of the things of God. Maybe it's been a long time for you since you've been there. And maybe you've been in a mode where just because of apologetic answers and questions, you you know a lot of people who aren't Christians, you have kids, they're asking lots of questions. Maybe you've been in a mode for a long time where you just are, are used to like having some kind of like short, concise way to explain everything about God and who he is and his things and his work in the world. Rediscover the mysteries of the things of God. How one God can be eternally existent in three persons. The mystery of the Trinity. How God's complete sovereignty, his complete control over everything, and human responsibility for their actions are somehow not mutually exclusive. How God can be 100% love and 100% mercy and 100% just, and those things don't contradict each other, they're all equally true in one God. How the marriage of a husband and wife is a display of Jesus and the church. Paul calls that a great mystery. That somehow this one human relationship can display the grace of God to the world in a way that no other relationship can. How the water of baptism, how the bread and the wine of the table aren't just symbolic pictures, but Jesus says, this is my body which is for you. Do this and remember that somehow in these symbols, in these pictures, the grace of God is present and working in our lives. There's a mystery to that. So sit in that mystery. Sit in that learned ignorance. And marvel in that, that God's ways are truly higher than your ways. That's where communion with God is found. The third pursuit that prepares our souls to commune with God is tranquility. Tranquility. Verse 2. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Why is David so specific? Why is David so specific? Why why does he not just say a child or an infant? Why a weaned child? A weaned child is a child that is no longer nursing. I don't have to tell you guys that. There's like 40 babies in the room right now. But just in case you're not there at the stage of your life, a weaned child is a child that's not nursing. And that means for that child who's been weaned, there's a different kind of calmness a different kind of quietness, a tranquility that's just not possible with an infant who's still nursing. One author puts it this way, a nursing child held by its mother is highly aware of the milk she can offer and will squirm or cry if denied. But a weaned child, a child who no longer nurses, is content just to be with its mother, enjoying her closeness and love without wanting anything else. A weaned child is content simply with his mother's presence. And that's the metaphor that David is using. A faithful worshiper of God is content simply with the presence of God. And what I think is an especially fitting metaphor for Mother's Day, what we see in Psalm 131 is actually a very motherly attribute of God. David's soul is the the weaned child, and God is like the mother whose presence he is Enjoying. Now stay with me because these kinds of things you can get off the rails in a hurry. But I think it's really important and I think what better day than Mother's Day to talk about this. God is spirit, right? He's neither male nor female. He reveals himself in scripture to be our father. 
right? That's, the, that's who he reveals himself to be. And the vast majority of the time in Scripture, he reveals himself in, in masculine ways. But it would really be a tragedy for us to skip or to downplay or to ignore the places where Scripture really highlights the feminine aspects of God. That doesn't mean that we should call God mother, right? God never reveals himself as mother. Jesus, in all of his prayers to God, never prays to God as mother. He always prays to God his father. So we shouldn't have the arrogance to change how God has revealed himself. Nor should we have the arrogance at the very same time to ignore or downplay that half of God's image bearers are female. Which is almost certainly what you are doing if when I mentioned the motherly attributes of God a second ago, if you rolled your eyes. Maybe you did that physically and visibly. Maybe you did that internally. You went, oh gosh, where is he? I can't go to this church anymore. If you rolled your eyes in that moment, then I really want you to hear this. Women are fully image bearers of God every single bit as much as a man. Have you truly grasped that? And not just doctrinally, but functionally. Functionally. You have to be pretty brazenly sexist to like explicitly deny that women are image bearers of God. No one really that I've ever heard in this room has said anything like that. But many adopt some kind of view of that in a functional way, where women are kind of image bearers of God, but men are really the ones that, that fully image God. That view, wherever we would have adopted that functionally in our lives, that's not faithful to Scripture. There is a glorious and a holy femininity that is part of what it means to image God. And when we see the nurture and care of a mother in places like Psalm 131, when we see the tranquility that that mother offers to a weaned child, that is to glimpse this holy femininity that finds its source and its substance in God. So as a church, I, I hope we always uphold this glorious distinction, the glorious distinctions between men and women. But to do that, to actually do that faithfully, and not in some kind of short-handed, short-sighted way, means we have to grasp and grow a higher and more robust view of women and femininity than many of us may have. We have to grasp even more the, the unfathomable blessing it is that God bestowed on the entirety of his creation when he made half of his image bearers female and not male. And what a gift it would be in a practical outworking of this. What a gift it would be for you today, for all of us today, to tell the women in our lives that we see even more clearly the glory and the image of God in them. The more that, that you and I grow in our communion with God, all that he is, all that he's revealed himself to be, the more faithful and astonished we will be in God's design for femininity and how that is so beautifully displayed through motherhood. That was a little bit of a tangent, but I think a help, hopefully a helpful and I think an important one. This kind of tranquility that David's talking about here this calmness, this quietness of soul. It's cultivated simply by experiencing and enjoying God's presence. Right? Communion with God. There's no way to, to, to cultivate communion with God apart from being in his presence. But if we're honest, that's not the way that you and I primarily relate to God. Most of the time, you and I operate much more transactionally with God. We bargain with God. And so maybe we're only pursuing communion with him and his presence when our circumstances get settled to a, to a certain level of our own specification. Some of you will maybe resonate with this. This is one of the ways that I handle things in an unhealthy way in my own life, in my own home. It's hard for me 
to rest in the evenings when I'm home with my family until the house is picked up to a certain level. And because I have two kids, four and under, that's a terrible prerequisite for rest. It just is not going to happen. That's a, that's a, as I'm sure you can imagine, that's a hindrance to rest, if that's a prerequisite for you, that, that level of specification. It's also a hindrance to relationship. It hinders, at times, my ability to commune with my wife and with my girls. There's something similar that happens in our soul that hinders communion with God. And the level, no doubt, would be different for, for each of us. But, but think about this. Where do you struggle to rest in God, to enjoy the presence of God, until you've achieved a certain level of stability? Maybe it's in, it's in all of the, the demands and trials of your life, as long as your family is doing fine and the relationships the people in your family are doing well. Maybe it's in your bank account. As long as your bank account has a certain amount in it, then you can really pursue communion with God. But until then, man, you're going you're gonna to worry about that. Maybe it's, maybe it's your job. It could be a thousand different things. Stipulations that we put in place like this, they are obstacles to communion with God. And that's why, counterintuitively, we often don't find deep communion with God until it all comes crashing down and we've got nothing left to stand on. And maybe you've tasted that too. Maybe you haven't really tasted communion with God until all of those stipulations and all of those pursuits in your life have just come crashing down and all you have left is the presence of God. And that's where communion can be found. You and I, by nature, by default, are much more like a nursing child than the wean child. We expect, we demand the benefits of our relationship with God, just like an infant does its mother's milk. But David here is saying, I'm pursuing the tranquility of a weaned child. I'm enjoying the presence of God without that bargain, without that transaction. So what bargain are you trying to make with God? Right? What non-negotiables have you put in place in your life that you're, you're waiting for, for these things to kind of iron themselves out and then you will pursue rest and communion with God? Whatever that is, start to spend time with God and not just for God. And start to spend time with God and not just requesting things from God. Right? If, if you're a, a parent and you spend all of your time for your kids, you spend all your time doing things on their behalf, running around, getting them things they need, running errands, staying up late to figure out your bank account so you can send them to whatever school they want to go to someday. Those are loving and sacrificial things to do for a parent toward their child. You won't have much of a relationship with your child if that's the only time that you spend is for them. You also have to spend time with them. And likewise, we must spend time with God. The time with God is, is relational. Right? Though we are called to, to present our requests to God. We're called to ask things from him. Take time to be with God that doesn't involve you asking for anything. I would, I would call you to do that today and this week if you haven't done that in a long time. Take time to be with God without asking for anything. And though we are called to do and be many things as citizens of God's kingdom, value your time with God above your time for God. And I'll tell you this from my own bad example and experience. The minute that we start to spend more time for God than we start to spend time with God, that time for God becomes transactional and bargaining in a second. And we start to expect that God's going to make my life look this way because I'm doing all these things on his behalf. Well, I haven't really been spending any time with him. It's been all in the name of him or doing something for him, but not actually with him. Instead of that, 
Pursue the tranquility of this calm and quiet soul. Lay aside your requests. Lay aside the struggle that you might have in your life right now to, to know what to do with your life or how to handle whatever situation you're, you're facing. And just enjoy and experience the presence of God. Because here's the real gift. You and I don't need to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We don't have to do what the Israelites did and ascend to that temple mount and go back there to do this. Through the finished work of Jesus, the one who entered the holy place once for all, the one who made atonement for the sins of the world, your heart can ascend to God at any time and at any place. And I pray that we would grasp more fully the gift that that is and not take it for granted. That we can ascend, our hearts, our souls can ascend to God in calmness and quietness wherever and whenever. Psalm ends with hope. And that's because in communion with God, hope abounds. There's a constancy now and forever, David says. This time forth and forevermore. It's because in communion with God, you don't have to manufacture hope. And you don't have to trade it out for some cheap substitute like relentless positivity and baseless optimism. You don't have to trade. You have real hope in communion with God. So may we pursue humility, and may we pursue mystery, and may we pursue tranquility. But more than all of that, may those pursuits lead us to the presence of God. Though we are united with him, may we experience even more communion with him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful, Jesus, that you came into this world, that you pursued communion with us, that you also, through your death and resurrection, and our faith in that, that we are united with you, and that that doesn't fluctuate. We have a standing with you that has been bought for us, and is not fluctuate, or it's not based on our own performance. And so we pray on that great foundation, that you would call us and invite us even more into deeper communion with you. Forgive us for where we neglect that, Forgive us for, for where we spend time for you or requesting things from you but not with you. God, would you remind us that your eyes are on us with compassion and that seeing ourselves through your eyes, we find humility and we find deeper intimacy with you. Would you remind us of the things that we just don't know because truly they are beyond us and you are beyond us. And may we find peace knowing that you are bigger than us and you are good and for us even as you are bigger than us. May that pursuit of mystery grow our relationship with you. And give us this calmness and quietness of soul. Like a weaned child not needing anything from you but simply content to enjoy your presence. I confess and on behalf of anyone else here who, who is the same as me, it's hard to sit still. It's hard to not want to be in a producing kind of mindset all the time. Help us to sit still like a weaned child with its mother. Help us to enjoy just your presence with us. And help us to appreciate even more, Jesus, your finished work that makes that possible for us wherever we are, that we don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience that. We can do it here. I pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.